tall, bushy, spiny, and fragrant, the piñon pine is a beloved feature of the Mountain West. And not just for its beauty. The tiny piñon nuts in the tree's cones are so good. People in the region have eaten them every fall for generations. They buy them at stores, from roadside stands, or harvest them themselves. But as climate change continues to affect the United States, something terrible is happening. The piñon harvest, it's getting smaller and smaller. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Monday, October 18th, 2021. Today, we go to New Mexico, where the piñon is the state's official tree. We talk to Axios Race and Justice reporter Russell Contreras, who's based out of Albuquerque and has an up-close view of the piñon's slow disappearance. And we also talk to a native New Mexican about the nut and tree's importance to her people. The piñon, when there's a good crop, there's a, a lot of it, and they're nice big piñon. But unfortunately, we haven't had the water here for the piñon to come out this year, and they, they only come out every seven years anyway, six to seven years. So hopefully next year, if we have a good winter, we might have some piñon next year. I've never seen it this dry. I've never seen it where you can walk across the Rio Grande, and you can walk across the Rio Grande. So that tells you a lot right there. That was John Muniz, a 77-year-old resident of Rio Rancho, New Mexico, and he was speaking to his neighbor, Russell Contreras, about this year's piñon harvest. Russell is a race and justice reporter for Axios, and my compa, my homeboy. Russell, what's up, man? Gustavo, what's going on, my man? Just talking piñones today, So, and you're our expert, of course, on this. So the West, legendary, filled with all sorts of iconic pine species. You got the ponderosa, the juniper, the white pine. So where exactly does a piñon grow, and how common are they? The piñon trees, they grew up in the highlands, so they're really high up in the mountains. So when you think about New Mexico and you think about where you can get piñons, it's in the area of Taos, where you can go up into the mountains and some of the national forest. And that's where these trees were roam, and it takes years for them to develop. As you know, the trees can last 600 to 1,000 years old, but they only start growing the nuts around when they turn 100 so in our lifetime, when a tree is born and planted and rises up, they will not start growing the piñons. They won't be able to get harvest until we are long gone. So it takes years for them to develop. And that's why they're not privately cultivated. You don't have piñon farms everywhere. I can't go up and buy some land in the mountains and start a piñon farm. If I did, I would never see it in my lifetime or my children's lifetime. So they grow up in public lands and we have rules on how you pick them, but they're very loose rules, and they're part of traditions that go back decades. Yeah, it's because they're so widespread up in the mountains, not just, of course, New Mexico, a little bit in Colorado, some in Nevada. The U.S. government allows the harvest on public lands, and you don't even need permits. Exactly. You have the limited space, a limited time where you can go get them. There's, of course, it's unregulated. It's largely on an honor system. And then they're traded in an unregulated market. I can go pick them, I guess sell them to a middleman and the middleman or middle person sells it to somewhere else and it's all cash based. So it's unregulated because it's so deeply ingrained in the culture of the state and in culture of the Southwest, there is no need to change them. However, there is the looming threat of climate change that is threatening not only just the plants, but the culture of how we get pinyons. So how does the harvest actually look like? Like, how do people actually get the nuts? Well, you have to go up there into some public lands. And it's usually around the holidays, especially here in New Mexico, where people go into a favorite location in the mountains out in Taos. 
And it's sort of like a family event and they get the pine cones. They pull them down and they have to crack them. Think of you trying to crack like sunflower seeds and then you collect them. And it's a very time consuming thing. So you just can't grab a bunch of pine cones and then find nuts. It takes a lot of time. And because of climate change and because the way our environment has changed, you don't get a lot of nuts in pine cones as you used to. A lot of the elders, as John would say, that you have to gather more of these pine cones to get the same amount. And because of that, you don't get the same amount in going home with the same bag that you would have, say, 50 years ago or 60 years ago. So it's a family event. You come down in parts of New Mexico, people drive up, especially around the holidays, to take part in this tradition and to collect piñons. And around Thanksgiving, some families expect you to bring piñons there mm-hmm. or else it's not really a Thanksgiving. What's the scene usually like then every fall? Like people pick the nuts because, you know, I've visited you in Albuquerque and I just always love to see random roadside stands at gas stations and small roads. And you have the sign, piñon, $25 a pound or like, it's incredible. Yeah, when you go to a site where people are picking them, it's usually you're driving in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. And so like my family, we like to go hiking in the mountains. And I've always was curious. You see a bunch of cars pull off on the side of the road and it looks like, Is there a concert in the forest? What's going on there? (laughs) Is there some sort of show, an air show? And it's really just people pull over on the side where tradition has set that this is the best place to get pinons. And people will go and you'll see trucks and you'll see cars and you'll see families and you'll see kids. And they're on the mountains just picking pinons. And it looks like a popular hiking trail for outsiders. That's what it looks like, except there's no trail. And sometimes I've stopped and said, is there a trail this is not showing up on my app that this is a place where we can go hiking. But it's word of mouth. It's people who've done this for years. They know this particular location of a pine tree or a dirt road. And they go up a mile and say, this is where we've gone for years. And that's where it goes. So to outsiders, it just looks like people just roaming into the mountains by trees. But to those who take part of it, they know the location. They know what the rules are. They bring a particular set of bags or collection to get those nuts. And then they participate just not only with their parents, but grandparents and uncles. It's a family event. But this year, as your neighbor said, it's different. Yeah. Here in New Mexico, the monsoon season was terrible. We did not get a lot of moisture. And then in the winter, we didn't get a lot of snow. You need the snow in the mountains so you can get snowpack to feed the various rivers we have. The Rio Grande right here is really dry. I can walk across parts of it outside of Albuquerque without getting wet. That's how dry it is. I may step in some mud. And because you're not getting the waters, that affects the piñons. And so every 70 years, five years, you have a good crop. You can go get them. But right now, because we've had very little moisture, it's affecting the plant. But we also had a few years ago an invasive beetle You combine that with the rising temperatures, especially in the mountains where temperatures tend to be 15 to 10 degrees cooler at times. And when it's too hot for too long, this affects the piñons. We'll be back after this break. Russell, you were mentioning earlier about bark beetles going after the piñon, and earlier this century, there were mass die-offs of piñones in Arizona and New Mexico, 
and everyone's attributing it to climate change. How concerned are folks about the Pinon's future? They're concerned because this is the state tree. This is so ingrained into the culture of New Mexico. But it's not just Pinon's, it's also pecans out in the southern part of the state. We've also had another invasive beetle out there that we had to quarantine pecans. And because Georgia a few years ago suffered a massive hurricane, New Mexico was the leader in selling pecans. But you combined pecans and pinons and the various other cultivated life we have here, plants that are facing some real challenges because of climate change. People are concerned because, yes, it represents a threat to the nuts, but also represents something else. Like I mentioned, families go up there. These are traditions. You can't have a tradition of going out into the middle of mountains when you have nothing to do. Right. So it fundamentally changes how people gather. And because of COVID, I talked to John last year during COVID and he was able to go out to the mountains and get some pinons and he could do it. Nobody was around. He could do it in a very social distancing. He was safe. And right now, as we come out of COVID, people are wanting to go out in nature, but there's nothing there. It's really hard to get something if a plant is struggling. And not only we're not getting a harvest this year, but some of the trees are dying. How can a local governments and or even people this generation respond to this shortage if it takes 100 years for these piñones to even start giving? Are activists or local officials trying to do anything? Well, it definitely seeps into the conversation about climate change and what we need to do. But here's the tough conversation, Gustavo, that New Mexico has when we're discussing climate change. New Mexico gets a lot of its revenues from oil and gas. So without oil and gas, we can't fund our educational system. So on one side, we got climate activists and environmentalists who say we need to get off oil and gas, but then what do you have to replace it? You don't have anything. Yes, you can start renewables, you can start solar, you can start wind, but those don't provide the same amount of jobs and those don't provide the same amount of revenue. We're already a poor state, so if we move too quickly, Yeah, we may have air to breathe, but we can't eat. And so you combine that with the need, the larger goal of us really cultivating our ecology here with water. But we're in the desert. We struggle with water. 80% of our water usage right now goes to agriculture. We're still functioning as we were 100, 200, 300 years ago. And it's so ingrained into the culture of New Mexico that if you were trying to have a conversation, we need to shift away from agriculture. It's using too much water. We can't handle it too more. That's a political death trap. No politician's mm. going to say, you guys, we need to stop growing alfalfa. We need to stop growing chile all the time. We need to stop growing certain plants. Because in certain rural areas, that's the only economy. But yet it takes up so much water and we can't grow as a state if we don't have water. And if you add that to we're taking water away that could go to areas where we get pinons, you could have a resurgence, but you have to have a conversation in the totality of all what I just mentioned. The other big development in recent years has been the increasing introduction of pine nuts from China because people still want to at least have a bunch of something that tastes like pinones. But how do New Mexicans feel about that? Well, New Mexicans always react adversely to any imports of a plant, crop, anything that resembles something they can grow here. For example, every time I hear stories about Chile coming in 
from other parts of the state or even from Mexico. Even people saying, let's bring in Pueblo green <laughs> chili and from Colorado. People go crazy. Why would you bring that when we have it here? But the reality is in a global economy, if we're shipping thing out, if we don't have enough to ship out or even enjoy, you have to bring it in if you want to continue enjoying your pinon coffee, for example, or nuts that are used for various recipes. So it is a balance, but when you do and people use this, they never mention that hey, this is something that's probably from China that you're eating with your traditional dish here that I made you. No one ever says it, but it happens here. But the residents react very violently, I would say, at least verbally, that if you were trying to bring something else that resembles something that's grown indigenously here, they will react in a very negative way, so to speak. Finally, Russell, the old timers always say that the piñon harvest, the good ones, are about every seven years or so. So maybe this year was just a bad harvest and next year will be that seven-year mark? We think so. I mean, we can only hope we need the rain, we need the snow. And we can only hope that in seven years we'll get a good one. But a lot of things have to happen. It has to get cooler. We have to have a good winter. We have to also not have a major forest fire. And that's something that, as you know, in California that the state suffers. We are starting to suffer that too here. Because we lack the precipitation, we're not having good monsoons. It just takes one bad lightning storm, one bad campfire that was not put out properly, one bad drop of a battery in the mix of a dry pile of leaves that sparks something. That could threaten not only that harvest seven years from now, but also the pinon trees themselves. We're living on the edge. I just came back from the mountains three days ago, and I could see signs that say where fire danger is moderate to heavy to high. And right there, I see if I were to drop a notch right there, it's almost like dropping gasoline right near a campfire. It's going to grow and it'll be uncontrollable. And then not only do you have those trees threatened, but also the ecology of an area. Russell, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Next up, how New Mexican identity is affected when its people can't eat piñon nuts. I don't know, I can't explain what they taste like, but they, they have a, their own taste and it's very good, especially when you roast them in the frying pan at home or in the oven. The smell of the pinon in the house is just awesome. Just like you're out in the, out in the woods from the trees, it's just awesome. That was John Muniz talking to Axios Race and Justice reporter Russell Contreras. Our next guest is Tay Mariana Nunn. She's the director of the American Women's History Initiative for the Smithsonian. The native New Mexican was previously director and chief curator of the National Hispanic Cultural Center's Art Museum and Visual Arts Program. Tay, welcome to The Times. Oh, thank you, Gustavo. It's great to be here and great to see you. So you know that New Mexico is a land that celebrates its culinary heritage like few other states that I've ever studied. I mean, you got hatched chilies, carnadovada, Spanish, Mexican, indigenous influences and traditions creating this amazing cuisine. Where does the piñon fit into that mix? Oh, the piñon is central. It's a cultural phenomenon for Nuevo Mexicanos and New Mexicans of all sorts and types. And it's a popular culture icon as well. It's a tasty one. It's a very tasty one, but you have to know how to prepare them properly. <laughs> what are your memories of piñon growing up? 
Oh, well, I always remember, I mean, while we went to pick a number of times when I was little, I mean, you know, little, you'd get with all the family and the friends and you'd go and pick piñones. I do remember certain places where the piñon sellers were to go and pick them. And so you knew your right places. You go to the fruit basket on 12th to get the really good piñon, not the imported piñon. <laughs> or you know the on-ramp to I-25 leaving Santa Fe, going to Albuquerque, you get the good piñon because he has the best prices, but they're the best piñones. So it's very important to know, you know, where you're getting your piñon and also how to prepare them properly. Yeah. And how do you prepare them properly? What are the memories of yourself or your mom or your grandma teaching you how to do that? Putting them on a cookie sheet in the, <laughs> in the oven for about 15 minutes, I think 325 or 350 and baking them and then bringing them out and salting them, eating them. I mean, it's like a real ritual to eat piñones and to, you know, learn how to do it properly and be able to crack the shell so you don't get so much of the shell versus the nut. And also, you know, we can, Nuevo Mexicanos, we can tell the difference between imported piñon and real piñon. I mean, you just know. What's the difference in your opinion? Thicker shell. Mm. A thicker shell. Yeah. What are some of the recipes that your family would make with the piñones? We would just really eat them plain, but I do have a friend who has a great recipe for an apple piñon cake which is, you know, pretty traditional, not so much. But really, it's just about eating them. I mean, it's not like we're putting them in pesto like everybody else is. It's the ritual of eating it. And about six or seven years ago, I was giving up a talk in Taos. And that was the time driving up there it was in October. And there were so many families out picking piñones that I don't recall seeing that many then. And I know we're really suffering because of the drought and other things right now. But there's a roadside ritual of going to find the best piñones and gathering them. Right now I'm in D.C. and I have two piñon trees in my backyard in Albuquerque that I'm just like dying to get back to to see if there's anything left. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. You're down on the East Coast. Do you have some piñones with you right now? I don't have any piñones with me right now. And this is all making me like my mouth is watering right now. Uh, I know the feeling with other items, of course. How have the piñon harvest changed in your lifetime? Well, you know, it's about every seven years. I mean, in New Mexico, it's kind of like the weather. We know it's going to change in five minutes. But the drought and the piñon bark beetle, various droughts, let me put it that way, have both really taken sort of a toll on the piñon tree. And as a result, you know, the piñones. And so, you know, I never want to think that anything bad is going to happen because I think of that amazing harvest that I just witnessed and took photos of and everything six or seven years ago. But I know that the harvest isn't as healthy as it was then this year. Yeah, it's disturbing to me to read. I'm starting to read essays about long timers who remember the piñon harvest going back in the 40s and 50s and just the abundancy of it. And now, you know, writing about, you know, times miss, whereas previously when you Mexicans would write about piñon harvest, it was just the abundance. The fact like you could go to any tree, knock down hundreds of them and just like eat up like nothing. It's really true. And that's what I remember from when I was little. But it's not the case right now. And, you know, it really is like I was mentioning earlier Piñones are part of the popular culture of New Mexico also. And there's, you know, piñon candy and piñon coffee. And there's a group called Lone Piñon that plays old New Mexico songs. And it's like, I can't say anything more than it's just like a thing. It's ingrained in the culture and indigenous culture as well. Yeah, it's embedded in the New Mexican soul. So when a people lose a food that's important to their culture, or it's not as abundant as before, what happens to those people? 
well, you lose a part of the culture. It becomes a memory. Let's hope that doesn't happen now. Let's hope that there's active modes of resuscitating the piñones. That's interesting about the piñon that there's almost no commercial harvest. It's just there. It's in people's backyards. It's in public lands. I read an article. There's a very, very tiny commercial harvest up north of Raton, so right there on the Colorado-Mexico border. But other than that, it's like a public common. The piñon is a public common. It really is. And you can see that when there's a healthy harvest, you can see all the families. I mean, like, it's a thing. Just like you go get your firewood. <laughs> you go, you know, let's go on Saturday. We're going to go get piñones. But I hear a rumor, you know, there's Buffett's candies, which I don't know if you've tried when you've been in Albuquerque, no. but it's an old fashioned candy shop. And I heard a rumor years back that he had a special piñon machine, the candy maker, like the place goes back to the 50s. And so that he is able to shell the piñones and make special piñon candies. But I just think that's funny. But nobody's ever seen the machine. Finally, the New Mexicans in your life, how do they feel about the prospects of a future with less piñon? Oh, boy. In all seriousness, a future <laughs> with less piñon would be tragic. I mean, for, you know, those of your listeners who may never have had salted piñones or just sit on a porch and... Again, I'm salivating, Gustavo. When you sit on a porch and you're just eating piñones and throwing away the shell, I mean, that's family and that's culture and that's meaningful. It's taking a moment in time to do that instead of all the mass processed craziness of this world. And so, you know, it really is a tradition. It's really part of the fabric of what it is to be a New Mexican. And I hate to sound like so like, you know, it is, but it's really true. I mean, it would be like a New Mexican without green chili also. I mean, it's that important. And at that point, you're not a New Mexican at all. <laughs> What's the point? Tay, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Gustavo. And thank you for paying attention to this. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, LGBTQ comedians on Dave Chappelle's controversial Netflix special. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias.